Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Our last podcast was recorded during the final seditious and chaotic days of the disastrous Trump presidency. We are now coming to you live from the other side. We have an exciting podcast planned for you. We're going to be covering the early and important sweeping actions from President Biden. Oh, that feels good to say that. And we will take a forward look at his LGBTQ agenda, nominations, and more. With us to dig into the weeds is Professor Anthony Kreiss. He is a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. You may also know him from the Twitter, where he is the LGBT law and appellate law expert, among other things. Anthony, it is such a pleasure to chat with you today. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And I have to ask you, now that you're living in Georgia, I was watching, you've got Senator Ossoff and Warnock, and I was watching SNL, and they were depicting the new blue Georgia. Is that accurate? Is it vegan hot dogs and MSNBC? I mean, that's always been the case in, in Atlanta and kind of metro Atlanta. It's getting more and more true every day down here, but it's it's a good feeling, that's for sure. Well, I, lo- I love it, and I hope you had something to do with it, 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 at the very least. We're all super excited, and I just saw John Ossoff was appointed to the Judiciary Committee, and we will talk all things judiciary in a little bit, so what a good way to kick off things. I was wondering if you could start with, we're taking a forward-looking approach, but if you had some thoughts about what it means to close the chapter on four years of Trump, what has been the impact on the rule of law, democracy, LGBT rights, social justice. Was it as destructive as we imagined and how do we recover? Well, I think it was partially so destructive because it was so so deceptive, at least at the beginning. Um, You know, obviously there were telltale signs beginning in 2015 and 2016 throughout the campaign that, that Trump was going to be generally hostile to civil rights but they were generally kind of framed in racial terms. And he was openly, you know, at least gestured towards being at least open to LGBTQ issues and seemed to be less hostile, at least outwardly, um, in terms of his rhetoric on the campaign trail. You know, but of course, that, you know, that yielded to the reality of who came into power once he was in office. Um, And so the folks who did have these incredibly traditionally hostile views uh, towards LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ equality were the people who were put in positions of power and used those levers of power to to really harm the LGBTQ community. And so, um, you know, it's, you know, a lot of the things that happened were, were very you know, directly attributable to the president. The the ban on trans service is, of course, right, perhaps the most direct thing that the president did in terms of harming LGBTQ rights. But the, you know, a lot of the other stuff that was done, you know, was were things that were kind of behind the administrative state. Um, you know, whether it be health and human services promulgating these very discriminatory rules or the Department of Education also promulgating discriminatory rules and taking back very progressive, you know, leaning um, LGBTQ rights positions in terms of like 
Dear Colleague letters. And then, of course, you have things like the courts, where the, the federal judiciary was, was taken from an institution that was lukewarm towards LGBTQ rights, I think perhaps at best, um, but, but growing warmer by the day, and set the, the agenda back perhaps 10, 15, 20 years just by virtue of putting social conservatives on the bench um, who are just deeply, deeply hostile to LGBTQ rights. So, you know, I, I think that what we might have expected from the onset of the administration, uh, you know, was very different. Uh, the things that perhaps got the most attention weren't, um, you know, you know, might not be, um, or I should say the things that were most destructive, didn't get the most attention because they were kind of procedural administrative law kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, as a consequence, maybe some of the damage has been fully understood. But I, but, you know, and of course, you had some great progress with the Supreme Court, not really, you know, necessarily attributable to the administration. Um, you know, so, so it's a, it's a really, you know, it's a dicey record. I think the problem is, is, most of the damage that can be undone by the by, by the Biden administration will be. The real question is, what's the lasting damage that's done to the federal judiciary? And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that more in detail. Yeah, definitely. I, I think before we get there, and there's a lot to talk about there, um, I'd like to move kind of chronologically and talk about, I mean, there's so much that we've already missed if you just you know, didn't talk about what happened in the very first days of the Biden presidency with the executive orders protecting LGBT people and, of course, the action repealing the discriminatory transgender military ban. Um, can you talk a little bit about what those actions did, why they're important, and, and what it means for uh, LGBT equality moving forward? So, you know, the, the first executive order, which kind of, you know, you know, kind of, you know, to kind of remove the legalese and some of the, the, you know, kind of in the weeds analysis, essentially what it did was demand non-discrimination protections be robustly enforced by the, by the federal government and that federal agencies take a hard look at the policies that were promulgated under the Trump administration and the rules and practices that were followed under the Trump administration and, and administrations past. Um, and to ensure that they are removed if they are found to be discriminatory and that the full effect of, of decisions, notably uh, the Bostock decision, um, you know, that, that, they, that, that sex discrimination be viewed in such a way that is inclusive of LGBTQ rights and that the full force of, of, you know, of equality is, is brought to bear in all federal policymaking. Um, so, you know, you don't, you're not going to see anything overnight magically change in that sense. Um, but at the same time, that will have long-term effects in, in terms of, you know, how children are treated in our schools, uh, you know, that, that receive public funding, um, how, you know, healthcare that is supported by federal dollars, how that impacts LGBTQ uh, healthcare access and healthcare, um, and, and and the way LGBTQ patients are treated in those in those spaces, um, you know, it'll certainly impact a number of different other uh, policy making areas as well, um, you know, and that that'll have a long term effect, and that that certainly will be, uh, I think, an important step. Now, of course, these are executive orders, and what what one can you know kind of give with with the pen, one can take away. That's the lesson of the last. You know, a few weeks, right? The, the the administrative, you know, advancements 
um, that were made under the Trump administration by by social conservatives to peel back some of these rights, right, can be essentially washed away, um, you know, by the pen as well. And so I think what's important is is right to recognize that while that particular measure is you know important in terms of just you know signaling where the administration wants to go, that um, you know we still need to pass legislation like the Equality Act, right, to to codify these rights and to ensure that the, that these uh, right these rights that we are kind of peeling back and getting back into a good space with um, right aren't subject to the whims of administration to administration. Um, so that's you know I think exceedingly important just to kind of keep in mind as we talk about this executive order in particular and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about the the trans uh, service executive order next but but they ultimately like with with any of these executive orders we really need to make sure that they are cemented in firm statutory law. That's right. And so moving to the trans military ban, it was a hateful un-American policy that was rushed out by tweet. It was immediately subject to several lawsuits. Um, what needs to be done to see equal service for LGB and particularly trans service members? Do these lawsuits go away? Uh, I know that they were around executive uh, you know, privilege to some degree at this point. Um, are there other actions that need to be taken? What do we do to get some permanence in this area so that people, trans people, have the ability to serve with confidence that, that it's not going to be taken away uh, with, with a change in administration? Well, you know, simply put, you know, the, the, the lawsuits will get mooted um, because there is no issue at this point that's judici justi justiciable uh, by, by the federal courts. Uh, you know, so what will have to happen in lieu of that kind of judicial determination and finality that would come with it is a statute which would codify uh, the, these protections into law. So ultimately, that's what needs to happen, um, whether it be trans service or whether it be some of the, the Title IX protections or whether, whether it be, you know, I mean, you name it. Um, what we really need to do is to ensure that we have a robust statutory regime which recognizes these rights. Um, but the other thing, too, that I think we need to, to mention kind of in this space as well is we, we probably should think about reforms beyond, you know, positive affirmations or uh, positive declarations of what LGBTQ people are entitled to. Namely, I think the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, is worth revisiting. Um, and perhaps amending to ensure that third-party harms cannot, you know, can, cannot come about um, if somebody uses RIFRA to challenge a, a particular federal law. So, um, you know, I think there, there is a lot of statutory work to be done here that Congress needs to get on um, to, to make sure that the kinds of reversals that we're seeing in the you know, coming weeks and months um, aren't subject to reversal again by a future administration. That's very important. We've already talked a little bit about, uh, you alluded to the victory at the Supreme Court, even though there's a super conservative majority now, we were certainly surprised earlier by the, well, many of us, by the Title VII ruling from last year. And then, you know, we have the prospect of, of the upcoming losses around religious discrimination cases like Fulton v. Philly. And so you mention, you know, 
uh, amending RIFRA as one of the ways that legislatively we might be able to cut off uh, some of the danger that religious discrimination might, might pose to LGBTQ people. But what happens if it becomes something that's, you know, constitutionally protected uh, religious discrimination or carve outs for LGBT people? Um, where do we go with, with a Supreme Court that's hell bent on, uh, you know, promoting <laughs> religious discrimination over LGBT equality? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things. Uh, you know, the first thing is, of course, historically, the Supreme Court doesn't like to do things which typically runs against the grain of public opinion. And so it's incredibly important to continue the the kind of, you know, social movement work that that lawyers and, and you know, activists have been doing for years to ensure that the public understands what's at stake here um, in order to keep the public and relevant stakeholders and politicians and uh, you know the, the legal community at large um, on you know firmly on the side of civil rights and LGBTQ rights and that is certainly a pressure point that I just think as a legal realist the, the, the Supreme Court can't ignore. Now that being said, um, you know this might be a moment that the Supreme Court feels that they have as you know with the six three conservative majority that they do um, you know to kind of take the last stab at you know, undermining some of uh, some of the progress that the LGBTQ community has made in in the courts by constitutionalizing some of these religious objections, um, and and so at that point, if that's what happens, our options are basically one of two things. The first thing would be some form of of, of court reform, um, right, where we add you know we add seats to the Supreme Court add seats to the federal judiciary, you know, kind of at large at both the district court level and the appellate level, um, and, and kind of force the courts to conform to our new majoritarian norms, which is embracing LGBTQ rights. Um, you know, I think given the dynamic in the Senate being so slim as it is, that's, that's an uphill battle that's unlikely to be successful, at least in the next two years, and um, which, you know, the, you know, that kind of leads me to the next thing, which is continuing the, the, you know, the activism um, and engagement in electoral politics, because, um, you know, without having control of the United States Senate, without having control of the presidency, um, we will lose control of, of the federal judiciary and the ability to reshape it. Yes, the court is 6-3 now, um, you know, but it's, it's not that far away from being flipped to a 5-4 liberal court um, you know, if the if Democrats hold control for the for the next you know not just you know four years but the next eight or or twelve years, and so it's really important that we continue our efforts both in educating people, being active in the political process, and and recognizing that there's a long term game that we have to play, which is the long term game Mitch McConnell has just played for for a very long time and just much more successfully than we have. Also, I would note that if anybody knows Justice Breyer, he needs to be told that now is the time to retire. Well, maybe not quite yet, but but around maybe April or May, we need to have a conversation about that. Um, so, so to anybody out there who knows Justice Breyer, send him my way. He 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 needs to take a, a vacation. He's served us well. <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. And I was going to talk a little bit more. Well, let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about the Equality Act and some of the big legislative pieces, particularly around co-sponsors and practicalities. Um, 
for passage, given the slim majority that you mentioned. But then we are definitely pivoting right back to Supreme Court, Supreme Court reform, and judicial nominees. Um, so, so the Equality Act, you know, we have commitments from leadership on moving this legislation forward. It'll definitely come to the floor. But how, you know, what are the practicalities of passing it, given the, given the filibuster and the slim chances to no chances of filibuster reform? Is it, you know, smaller pieces, budget reconciliation? What's the best approach to actually getting that done? Well, I actually think the Supreme Court made our job a lot easier because now the answer is, well, this is basically the law of the land. Um, it is clarifying. It codifies essentially what the court already said is true in terms of Title VII. It extends it to some other spaces affirmatively, um, right? So Title VII, of course, only protects against employment discrimination. Um, and, you know, here the Equality Act will expand sex-based discrimination protections in, you know, other areas, whether it be public accommodations or banking and credit and things like that, um, you know, and, and affirming that, that the rule that's been applied in Title VII also applies to Title IX, also applies to fair housing, um, you know, so, so in many ways, there isn't a grounds, you know, there, there, there isn't some kind of you know, you know, ground, you know, shaking, you know, earth moving difference um, that the Equality Act will make both, in, you know, in terms of Title VII and some of the, you know, kind of uh, similarly parallel or parallelly worded statutes. Um, and so there are important protections that, that the Equality Act affords and uh, affirms, which aren't provided by Bostock solely. Um, so it is important for it to be passed, right? We can't just say, oh, well, the Supreme Court took care of that. That's, that's, not, that's not accurate. Um, you know, so certainly it does more. But you know, if the core of the decision of Bostock means that sex discrimination provisions across the board apply to LGBTQ people, then a lot of the things that the Equality Act does aren't, you know, you know, they're, they're just not radically changing the world in which we live because companies and you know, employers across the nation are already a, adhering to this rule. So there, there isn't some kind of reliance interest that's at stake, right? So a, a lot of these things uh, that might be a point of opposition have been removed by the court um, and will have been removed by the court for you know, almost fully a year probably by the time, you know, we, we get really close to perhaps signing this into law. So I, I think that that makes it easier. It makes it easier that there are Republicans who are certainly going to support it. Um, you know, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, they will certainly support it. I, I'm, I would be fairly surprised if, um, you know, Rob Portman uh, doesn't support it. You know, so, so there are there are a handful of Republicans who, you know, certainly have signaled before that they support this. Um, and I, you know, I think that that's also kind of an important thing to remember too, um, that, there, that there likely is a, a, a substantial enough number of Republicans that we can get this through, um, you know, without having to ax the filibuster, you know, and that's a whole debate that we can, that folks can have with me on Twitter another time. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm very, I'm fairly hopeful, notwithstanding the slim margins. All right. What about cabinet appointees? We saw Pete Buttigieg just confirmed today as the Secretary of Transportation. It's a new milestone for LGBT people serving at the highest levels of the presidential cabinet. What about and what are your hopes for uh, the attorney general and the powers of that um, 
you know, office to actually make a difference once again uh, in the lives of LGBT people to use the tools uh, that are available uh, to make sure that the laws that exist are enforced and enforced aggressively. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was very disheartening was, for example, watching the Department of Justice argue on behalf of the United States against civil rights positions um, you know, for, for the first time ever, really. Um, you know, at least in that kind of aggressive, or taking that as aggressive of a, of a posture against it as, as the Trump administration did. Um, you know, both in Title IX and in Title VII and a whole, you know, host of, of issues. And, um, you know, even looking back to kind of, you know, some, some of the issues in Masterpiece Cake Shop, right, that you, you really had an aggressive posture where the position in the United States for four years was that LGBTQ discrimination was both lawful and, you know, a, a net positive to society. Um, and so that's really going to be a dramatic change, right? The, the, the tenor and tone and posture of the Department of Justice and the positions that they take on behalf of the United States while arguing to federal courts. Um, you know, that's certainly important. And of course, what representation in on the cabinet level is exceedingly important as well. And I and I think that especially having someone like like, like uh, you know now Secretary Buttigieg, um, you know in the cabinet advocating for uh, critical right critical things for the health of the country right which are not um, you know which are not I, I don't want to say you know they're not like pegged as civil rights issues I mean although there are many civil rights issues that you know the Department of Transportation needs to address. Um, but you know, this idea like big infrastructure plans and right new technologies, right, things which are so crucial to the development of, of our national economy, our our you know national future, climate change, you name it, right? Um, to have an LGBTQ person leading the charge on that, I think is is ex it's just you can't under you can't understate how crucial um, you know, a moment that is. And so it is my hope that you know we will see many, many more uh, people in the administration, whether they be um, you know White House staff, undersecretaries, um, you know you you name it, uh, judicial appointments, you know the folks who are LGBTQ people um, who who will be front and center in this administration. All right, well, let's talk about judges. Biden has promised a new type of nominee. Gone are the days when Democrats are appointing, you know, big firm lawyers, prosecutors. Uh, now we're promised defense lawyers and civil rights advocates. Um, but at least for now, we know we have this two-year window uh, where we can undo some of the damage that Trump has done by confirming mostly, as you said, aggressively anti-LGBT young, white, right-wing, cisgender men to the federal bench at all levels. And I guess the first question that I have is kind of, you know, what's taking so long? Uh, there are, you know, there are a lot of um, uh, great folks who would make great nominees. And Trump was, of course, notorious for list, uh, listing all of the appointments that he wanted to make to the Supreme Court on a short list and had two of them, I think, uh, before he was ready to go. So why are we waiting until what I've, the latest I've heard is spring um, to get some of these blue state judges uh, confirmed to the federal courts? Well, I think there's a few reasons. I mean, of course, 
we have to remember that Mitch McConnell left open dozens and dozens and dozens of federal you know, judgeships from the Obama era um, you know, and rejected President Obama's nominees. And so there were just kind of an untold number of, of vacancies uh, just ready there for, for the filling. And that's just not true now, um, right? In fact, I can't remember if there was just one or maybe two circuit court not, uh, vacancies that, that were um, opened up at kind of basically at the beginning of the administration. Um, and, and now we have a few announced retirements. So I think part of it is just the, the there's a scarcity of vacancies um, that was not exactly true um, at the beginning of the Trump administration. So, so part of there's that, there's that. Um, and I, and I suspect part of it is just a matter of, you know, you know, we've got a, we've got a lot of other big package stuff that we need to try to get through on an emergency basis first. Um, you know, of course, Congress needs to be able to, you know, walk and, and chew gum at the same time. Um, you know, I think the other thing we have to remember is, uh, you know, today is what, February 2nd. Um, so, you know, a month ago, we still, you know, as a month ago today, we didn't know who would control the United States Senate, um, right? So, so a lot of things have, have unfolded fairly rapidly um, just in the last three or four weeks. And then we had the organizing um, resolution, which Mitch McConnell stonewalled. I mean, I, I think it's been quite an uphill battle. The, the key, however, is, you know, now that it's we're, we're approaching mid-February, we're beginning the reconciliation process for the COVID relief bill. Um, you know, we've, we've got a couple of weeks and now we, now we got to get going. So, um, you know, I would personally, I personally give them a slight pass for not getting on things in the last month. Um, you know, but, but once this COVID relief bill passes, there are no excuses. We need to get rocking and rolling on the vacancies that we do have. Um, and, you know, there have been just in the last two weeks, um, a number of vacancies that have opened up because judges are now beginning to retire. Um, and so that's another important thing to consider too. Um, you know, as we, we recognize in the next two weeks or so, probably we'll have a, a maybe half dozen more judges who retire. Um, you know, we'll want to really look at what vacancies are available, what jurisdictions are they coming from, who do we want to fill in those positions, how do we want to make sure we get a good balance with the positions that we have available and the vacancies that we have to fill. Um, and so I'm, I'm confident that once the, the, you know, the DOJ and, and folks in the White House start to kind of get into place and, and are able to vet individuals, you know, we'll, we'll see a fairly rapid, rapid progress on that front, I hope. And if not, then it's on us to make sure that the Senate hears us, to make sure that Chuck Schumer hears us, um, you know, to, to, to get on that as soon as possible. Yeah, I, I I guess I'll I'll tone down my rhetoric a little bit. I guess I'm chomping at the bit, but I do know we have two um, Supreme uh, two Second Circuit vacancies uh, that recently opened up, and you know Schumer's folks, the folks at the American Constitution Society, Demand Justice, all of them are talking names, having appointments. So I do know we're having progress forward. And speaking of names, are there people that come to mind of you know, we we have some descriptions of the types of nominees that we'd like to see, but do you have a kind of wish list of folks that you would love to see appointed to the circuit court and district court level to change the way um, that that judging is done right now? Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know, I mean, 
I'm biased, but you know, I, 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 you know, when I think of the second circuit, right, which is probably more interest to, to your folks than, than not, um, you know, I think of people like Melissa Murray, right. You know, um, you know, women, you know, you know, women and particularly women of color, um, you know, who, who have a lot of experience dealing with a variety of civil rights issues, who really think of things and think of the world and think of the law in a way that I think reflects reality. Um, you know, people who are kind of part of society, right? Who, who understand what, what folks deal with every day, who understand what discrimination is like, who understand the, the kinds of issues that LGBTQ people face and recognize that not all LGBTQ people face the same kinds of issues in the same way and, and is able to kind of, you know, embrace the, those nuances. Um, you know, so, you know, someone like her would be great. Um, you know, certainly I, you know, I, I think that people, um, you know, I, I would love to see some, some federal public defenders on the list. Um, you know, that's, I think, a, a you know, a important to, to consider for sure. Um, you know, and I, I think that, that just, um, you know, in terms of elevating voices who, who haven't been, you know, kind of the mainstream appointees, um, on the you know federal bench historically is is important, right? We can do a lot of good, and and the other thing that I think is crucial here too is to remember that even if we can only put a small dent in the the, the kind of damage that's been done by by the Trump appointees, having some form of representation on a you know on an appellate uh, bench, right? Having having at least somebody there who who you know might be the one non you know Republican appointee on a appellate panel might be able to bring some kind of perspective to bear, which can change one judge's you know mind, and that might alter the outcome of a decision. So you know, yes, we we might have some limited opportunities, um, you know, at least in, even in the most immediate next year, um, but those opportunities are still very important. Uh, in, in order to kind of undo some of the damage and to be able to bring a richness and a, a you know, a diversity, uh, you know, to the federal judiciary that is just so desperately needed. That is such a good point that you just made about the importance of diversifying um, benches when, when decisions are made by uh, a panel where influence can really, really matter. And uh, we do need to, to think very carefully about how incremental change actually is, is big picture change. It creates the big picture change. Um, so I'm wondering in closing, if you have, I mean, I was gonna talk to you a little bit about blue slips and, and procedural hurdles, but I think, you know, not, not to bore folks, uh, you know, we'll be tweeting about that. Follow us on Twitter for nitty gritty judicial stuff. But I'm wondering, do you have some more uh, advice, practical advice for the best ways that progressive lawyers can get involved to see the progress forward that we want on these various fronts, whether it's legislatively uh, on the judiciary? Um, what's the best way for folks or a couple of ways that folks can get involved? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. You know, one is that we have to recognize that our activism and our work uh, on a grassroots level does translate into progress and electoral successes, which in turn uh, result in legal change, right? Um, 
the work that was done on the ground here in Georgia, right, produced a very different Senate majority, which is going to produce a very different kind of body of law and a different set of calculus uh, calculuses when it comes to filling judicial nominees, right? That that matters, right? The the basics of uh, you know participatory democracy matter, uh, and that's I think the thing is, of course, right. That's not unique to lawyers, and so maybe that's not appealing to lawyers as, as something like, oh, that's something that I can especially contribute to with my skill set, you know. But that's that is kind of the bedrock, um, you know. That, that that's that's the key to the success here in many ways. The other thing, though, of course, and this is something we all know, is that you know impact litigation and impact legislation is crucial to getting courts on our side. And, and, and really kind of hammering home to courts what's at stake and where the public position is. And so being involved in one way or another with state local bar associations, uh, with organizations, um, you know, whether it be Lambda Legal or whether it be, you know, a, a, you know like a Georgia Equality or a Garden State Equality, you know, the state level organizations, those things matter. Being part of, of you know, legislative campaigns, um, you know, whether it be getting involved or getting behind a, a gain transparent defense ban, um, you know, in New Jersey or, or somewhere else, right? Um, you know, or basic, you know, or ensuring that LGBTQ people are protected in Pennsylvania, right, under employment and discrimination law. These are the kinds of, of building blocks which will lend itself to our leveraging for longer term success. But it requires people with the knowledge and the skills and the resources and the time to put that effort in. Um, but every single progress, every, every little bit of progress will help us get to a better place where we need to be. And so, yes, we focus on the Supreme Court a lot. And yes, we focus on kind of the big salient news, you know, headline grabbing stuff. But that stuff is not possible without the years of hard work before. And so that's what we need to continue to do. We need to do what we did in 2020 and 2022. Uh, we need to make sure that we have progressive uh, legislators in our state legislature and, and not lose sight of, of local protections where there maybe not be state protection. So it's really just kind of an all hands on deck situation um, each and every day. And it's going to be crucial that we can you know, we sustain that effort for the next four, eight, 12 years in order to make sure that the winds that were so hard wrought um, are not eroded by, by others. That's a great point to end on, but I'm going to ask you one more question, which is, you know, you're a law professor. Can you talk a little bit, this is an unprecedented time for law students uh, at the moment. What are the ways that um, other lawyers, um, who are professionally more advanced in their careers can be offering support for law students who are facing real troubles finding internships, jobs, um, or even community because they're doing virtual learning. Do you have any kind of insights from your experience teaching? I mean, I think that students, law students are very hungry and eager to network and make these kinds of connections and they've been deprived of those. Um, and so, you know, given the lack of natural places to find these connections, um, right, we don't have the, the cocktail parties and we're not having the mixers and we're not having the, you know, the conferences. And, and so those 
kind of organic moments are just gone for now. Um, and so, you know, I think that for those folks who have the capacity to mentor or, or who have a position that might be open or who, or who might have, um, you know, some kind of opportunity that they want to, um, you know, to, to reach out, you know, it's important to reach out to contacts, right? Whether you know a professor who might know somebody or you just, you know, send an email to the head of outlaw or you reach out to the career services of your alma mater or whatever it might be. Um, you know, I, I think that there are, there's a lot of ways to, to, to do that. But the, the key is, is to reach out and to make the make the initiative and to express interest, because I think once that interest is expressed, there's no doubt in my mind that students will jump out at the opportunity and, and take it. All right. Well, that really will end it for us. Anthony, Professor, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about these issues. We'll definitely have you back again soon and um, stay warm down there in Georgia. That sounds good. Thanks. All right. Take care. And thank you so much for joining us. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes, on legal.podbean.com, on Spotify, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll be back very soon with the next installment. 